So I'm going to read the text today. Um, we're in Matthew chapter 2, starting at verse 13, and we're going to go all the way to the end of the chapter. Um, I'm going to read the text to you today, and just to give you a heads up of what we're looking at, this is, this is some narrative where, if you're familiar with the Christmas story at all, the Magi, the wise men, have come and visited Jesus, and this is the narrative that's going to move us from that moment after the Magi have left Jesus to where John the Baptist kind of starts the beginnings of Jesus' ministry. John the Baptist is the forerunner. So this is the narrative that gets us to that point. Um, it covers many years. Um, so I'm going to read it and then pray and then we'll jump in. So here's here, verse 13. Now when they had departed, now this is the Magi, when they had departed the house, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And they remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that the men had... I'm sorry. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and, and all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled by what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeped for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. I'm sorry, appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth that was spoken by the prophets, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Let me pray. Lord, I uh, am fully aware that an opportunity to be able to preach, to be able to stand and proclaim the truths of Christ according to your scriptures is a tremendous privilege. And a, and a very solemn thing that I should take seriously. So, Lord, I, I come confessing that I need your spirit. I come confessing that I need a special um, touch from the Holy Spirit this morning that I can't do this by myself. And so I acknowledge, Lord, that I, I can't do it at all and that you would come and speak through me, that every word I say would be from you and that as I preach that you would change my heart, that I would see Christ, see the gospel, understand the gospel more clearly, more beautifully and that each one of us would have that. I pray that as we go through this, this narrative of Matthew, Lord, that each one of us would, would see the gospel in this. That we, we would realize the gospel isn't something that we come to at the point of salvation and say we have that down and then we move on to more quote-unquote spiritual things. But the gospel is the very reality that we live in for our entire life. So God, I pray, Lord, that you would help us see that and that we would need the gospel to be able to love our wives. We would need the gospel to be able to take tests and study this semester. That we would need the gospel to be able to teach our children about you. And we need the gospel to be able to kill sin in our lives. To realize that we have been given from Christ all of his righteousness. And now that we have attained this, we can walk in it. 
So Lord, I pray for these precious realities to land deep in our souls. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we read, you should have noticed that this is, in, especially in our little Bible, it's broken up into three little sections, um, three little sections of narrative. First is the flight to Egypt. The second is when Herod starts killing all the children. And the third is the return to Nazareth. And as you should have, should have noticed also, at the end of each one of those little sections, Matthew pulls in a prophecy from the Old Testament. And so he's trying to do something there for us. Now let me give you a big understanding here of where we are and what's going on um, if you haven't been with us. And then we're going to look at how he breaks that out into three little sections with a prophecy at the end of each one of those little sections and what that means for us. Um, We've been going through Matthew. And as we noticed as we're going through Matthew, um, Matthew is writing this book primarily to a Jewish audience. He wants all those that um, are of Israel to understand that, and, and the people that are of Israel understand the Old Testament scriptures. They knew the Old Testament scriptures. They, they were familiar with these things. So he's writing to this this audience, and he's wanting them to see this man named Jesus that came and lived and did many good works and healed people, and eventually went to a, a Roman cross and died. He is the Messiah that all these Old Testament scriptures that you're very familiar with have been talking about. And so he's writing to that Jewish audience, that very unique audience, wanting them to see that Jesus is the Messiah. So as we went through the chapter one of the genealogy, that's what he was bringing us to. And the whole point of chapter one is that he's wanting everybody that's a Jew to see Jesus is the Messiah. And this is really the point of the book. This is really the point of the book. And so we went into the second part of chapter one, really the birth story. And we, we centered in on verse 21, um, because verse 21 that, uh, G- Jesus said, or the Bible says, she will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, which Yeshua, or the Lord, saves, for he will save his people from their sins. And so as he's, Matthew's pointing this out, that Jesus is the Messiah, he's wanting them to see this guy, this man Jesus, this God-man, is the one that saves us from our sins. It's where we find redemption. It's where we find rescue. And so we went into chapter 2, and we saw the story of the Magi, probably a couple years um, after Jesus was born. Um, and the, the main thing I wanted us to grab from this, there was a lot of stuff, but the main thing that I wanted us to see is that these magi had come in to the city. They, they, the star brought them to Jerusalem. Um, and when they got to Jerusalem, the star that had brought them there had kind of vanished. And so they're, they're looking around and they're asking, hey, uh, where do we go? Anybody know about this guy, Jesus? And the chief, uh, the chief priests and scribes pulled out the scriptures. And, Ma- and Matthew's really wanting us to see. He, they quote Micah 5, 2, and they say, Oh, this, this guy is born in, in Bethlehem. This, this guy that you're talking about, this guy that you're seeking, this baby you're seeking is born in Bethlehem. And so they pull out the Old Testament scriptures, which Matthew really wants those Jews to see. Hey, the scriptures are bearing witness about this coming Messiah. So the Magi say, oh, okay, they're in Jerusalem. They travel six miles south to Bethlehem to go see the baby, to go see Jesus. But the very chief priests and scribes that knew the scriptures that say this guy this baby i keep calling him guy i shouldn't do that this baby the christ this messiah um is down in bethlehem they don't go they don't go and so a big warning for us that kind of comes up is these these chief priests and scribes know the scriptures they know the scriptures and they knew that this the scriptures were bearing witness about this this baby that is the coming Messiah, that he's down there. And they don't get on the road with the Magi and go down to see and worship. And a lot of us know the scriptures. A lot of us know the things that we're supposed to know. We know all the ins and outs. We know all the details. But perhaps we need to, like them, not just kind of stop with knowledge, but get on the road and start moving towards a deeper walk with Christ. 
not just stop with knowing things. Which brings us to um, verse 13. Now, Herod at the time told the, told the Magi, hey, whenever y'all go, let me know where this baby is because I want to come worshiping too. He's just lying. He wants to clearly, as we read this, um, take out Christ. Um, and so the, the Magi don't go, it says in verse 12, being warned in, a, warned in a dream not to return to Herod. They depart their own way. And so we see um, that it's going to eventually tick off Herod, make him very upset, and he's going to walk. Now, um, he's going to go down there and try to kill, kill these babies. Well, he does. And then we're, we're going to go into chapter 3 next week. Now, just a little bit of a heads up on chapter 3. Chapter 3 is going to be pretty heavy. Um, pretty, like John the Baptist is preaching to Pharisees and Sadducees, and he's being very direct with them. So that's next week. That's going to be fun. Um, here's the thing. As we look at things like this, as we look at um, these scriptures here that we're looking at, there's two things I want us to see. Um, two main meanings of these scriptures that I think Matthew is wanting us to see. Number one, and this has been the, the kind of the line as we've been going through all of them, which is Jesus Christ, the man that was born 2,000 years ago or so, to Joseph and Mary, is the Messiah of Israel. And not only the Messiah of Israel, but he is the one that has been prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures, and he's the savior of the world. That's the point. Jesus is the Messiah. Now, that may seem like old hat to some of us, but we, we need to realize this is written 2,000 years ago to, to, to Israelites that weren't thinking in these realms. And he's saying, Jesus is him. So that's the first point. The second point is this. Um, as we look at this story, we see the sovereignty of God in this, in every situation, he is bringing things about according to his plan. He's protecting this child as he goes down. He's protecting this child as they go back over and he's, as they go up. But we see also, as Jesus is protecting the Messiah, that there is babies that die. Which is hard to see and hard to understand. But the point that we need to see is, number one, that Christ is the Messiah, and that number two, God is totally sovereign in every single situation and brings about the, His purposes according to His plan. And sometimes they will go well for us, sometimes they'll be very easy, life will be easy, and sometimes they'll be difficult. But we have to trust that God is totally sovereign in every single situation. Um, and this can be comforting in one sense whenever you're Mary and Joseph, but this could be very easy for us in our in our. Um, inability to totally understand every situation, to rebel against these things if we're the child, uh, if we're the parents of the children that are left here, it, as it says, a, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children if we're those, if we're those parents. So today will be heavy in some sense as we kind of talk about the sovereignty of God and think about what that looks like in our life. Now, there's a danger as we're preaching through stuff. If I, if I just kind of talk about the sovereignty of God and leave it up in these 30,000 feet realms of kind of just thinking about and not bringing it down, not kind of landing the plane in our lives so that we can, we can see what does that mean tomorrow? What does that mean today? How does that mean that I should suffer? And I'm hopefully going to try to do that today. If we can't let the gospel kind of bear into that and see what that means in life, then all we're going to think about at Christianity is just, well, Christianity and talking about Jesus is just, you know, kind of these lofty thoughts, but we don't ever know what that means in, in, in everyday life. And we kind of think, as we start going through that, the Bible is information, but 
When we talk about these stories that live 2,000 years, these guys that live 2,000 years ago, the Bible's not practical in situations today. So we need to really kind of figure out what to do in everyday life by ourselves. The Bible just gives us some theology, but it's not practical, which is totally untrue. The Bible is relevant in every single situation and practical for everyday life. So hopefully I'm going to try to bring that plane in at the end. All right, so let's go ahead and start looking at these things. Um, Verses 13 through 15. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. So they're in Bethlehem and he's told, I'm going to kind of say, they're in Bethlehem, he's told to flee down to Egypt. Um, and he, so he goes down over here to Egypt. Um, and, and we see that it says they came, um, the angel came in the middle of the night. And so this is a, this is a, and it says, And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. So this is a very much a, an abrupt thing. Hey, you've got to get up and go right now. It's time to go. And Joseph, we see, says that he arose and he went. Com- complete, immediate obedience. He goes straight down to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. And then it says, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken out of the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, this is very significant. This is all very significant because what we're going to see, and we know in, in Exodus 4.22 that it calls Israel his son. And so he's going to say, Matthew's going to quote Hosea 11.1, 1, and he's going to say this, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now we know in the Old Testament scriptures, especially as we're going through the genealogies, that there's a little bit of a story where Israel had gone down to, to Exodus and they, I'm, I'm sorry, to Egypt and they were, it was in Exodus. They're in Egypt and you know the whole story, you know, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go. Huh? And so they're down there in Egypt and we know that eventually that they're called out of Egypt back to the promised land. And so Israel in, in Exodus 4.22 is called his son. Now here's, here's the point. Here's point number one. Um, there's a flight to Egypt, but there's a prophecy in this verse 15, which is coming from Hosea 11.1. 1. And here's what's going on. Israel is the foreshadow. The reason why Israel was sent down to Egypt and eventually brought back up into the promised land is because one day, whenever Christ would come, he would be sent down to Egypt and he would be called back up, just as we read in the story, back up to the promised land. So Israel is the foreshadow. Jesus is the ultimate embodiment of Israel. So Matthew sees that just like Israel was put down into Egypt and eventually came back up here to the promised land, Jesus was sent down to Egypt here in his childhood. And we're going to read that he's eventually going to come back up into the promised land for a little bit before he goes up to Nazareth. I know that. But Matthew sees this and he says, just like what Hosea the prophet said, he didn't say Hosea, just like the prophet said, out of Egypt, I called my son. So what we're looking at here in these three Old Testament prophecies are not just prophecies, but gospel prophecies. Good news prophecies. Good news that Jesus came and died on the cross because Matthew quotes Hosea. Hosea. So this isn't just um, a story where Israel is pulled up to Egypt and so is, and so is Christ and it's just like, hey, those two are similar. But the, the point is that Matthew is quoting Hosea 11.1. 1. This is very, very beautiful um, because this book of Hosea is about a story of, of a husband, a wife named Hosea and Gomer. And as we read, if you're not familiar with the story, um, God tells Hosea to go and marry this prostitute named Gomer. And he says, um, you're going to have deep, abiding love affections for this lady Gomer that you can't even understand. And she is going to go and she's going to have many lovers 
that aren't you, but you're going to not be able to shake it. Like you're going to completely be so in love with her that you're going to continue to go to her. You're going to continue to fight for her. You're going to continue to, to draw her back. And the reason why he did that is because he wants Israel to understand I, God the Father, am like Hosea, and you, Israel, are like Gomer. And though you go and you have many lovers, I have a deep and abiding love for you that will never go away, just like Hosea. And we see in Hosea 3.1, it says this, um, And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man. This is Hosea saying, Go love Gomer, who is loved by other men, um, and is an adulteress. So as even the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins, um, so... Hosea said, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lecthith of barley. So what we see here is Homer, I'm sorry, Hosea, I knew I was going to do that, that we see, I do that every single time. We, so, we see Hosea and, and Gomer has, has gone and found, found other lovers. We see Hosea going and, and purchasing this woman that he has deep affections for, even though she has other lovers and purchasing and bringing her back to him which is exactly a picture of the gospel. This is what God has done. We were enslaved by our sin, just like she was enslaved by her paramours. Though she was um, enslaved by her paramours, just like Israel was enslaved by Egypt, and they were putting their trust in other things, um, God in his tender love restored, Hosea in his tender love restored Gomer. God in his tender love restored Israel. And Christ has come as the Messiah to restore all of us by dying on a cross for us, God has bought us. And so this is just a huge picture. So all that, remember, this is written to a Jewish audience. They knew the scriptures. And so as he says, out of Egypt, I called my son. They're not just saying, oh yeah, that's right. Just like Israel kind of came out, we came out. But he's quoting Hosea and they're saying, oh, Hosea and Gomer. Jesus is the one that has rescued us. Jesus is the one that had brought us, brought us um, reconciliation. Here's the thing. Um, you and I, if we're in Christ, were Gomer. Now, I used to preach this all the time and say, you and I are Gomer. We prostitute ourselves out all the time. But God's been making me realize something. If you're in Christ, this is glorious. I mean, if I can somehow communicate this truth without trying to mess it up. We were Gomer. We aren't Gomer. We were Gomer. We were paramours. We were lovers of other people. But now he has brought us in. And now we're sons and daughters of the Most High. This is a gospel prophecy. This isn't just a story of seeing the fact that Jesus was brought out of Egypt just like Israel. This is reconciliation for us as sons and daughters. We were her. We were Israel. But now we're sons and daughters of the Most High. Consider that love. Consider that for a moment. That everything inside of us rebelled against God. Everything inside of us pushed against Him. But He had this never-ending, steadfast love, no matter what you did. You can't get away from God's love. You can't push it away. There's no sin where he's going to finally say, oh, hands off, that's enough. He continually pursues you if you're a son and daughter and brings you in. You were, and I was, 
Gomer, but now we're a son and daughter of the Most High. That's the first gospel picture in this little set of verses. Beautiful. Just so beautiful. And it doesn't end there. Like, Matthew's not done. He's going to just keep hitting them with these three gospel pictures because, as I said, this Jewish audience was very familiar with these scriptures and they understood. Here's the next one. It said, When Herod, <clears throat> then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Herod was insane. Just absolutely insane. Um, killing babies was not a big deal for him. As a matter of fact, he had, what, had one of his own children killed. Um, and one of his wives killed. So it wasn't a big deal because one of the sons was, when he's starting to die, when Herod's about to die, and it gets really graphic about how he dies. Weird. But anyway, I wish I could read it, but it's just too, you know, PG-13 into R. But um, so right before he's, he's about to die, one of the sons knows he's about to die, one of his own sons. So he starts trying to plot to be able to take over some land. And Herod heals about this, and he's not dead yet. And he just tells his people to go kill his son because he feels like his son is trying to take over. I mean, just an insane guy. Um, and so when we read this, we think, well, that's insane. And then we think catastrophic major event, like tons and tons of children just slaughtered, which we know this is a small city, probably about 500 people. So as far as male children under the age of two, probably somewhere in the range of 10 to 15 to 20 babies were killed. Um, that's not, you know, this mass scale of children killed, but still, that's a lot. That's a lot of children I can't even comprehend thinking that one of my, my that my child that my son would be killed because they think that he might be coming to take someone's throne, and so here we see this Herod, insane guy, starts killing children. He's mad already at, at the Magi, and so instead of um, taking the blame of it, I mean, this is his fault. He lied. He's the one that lied to the Magi, and they just realize it and don't return to him. And so instead of being mad at himself for being a fat, big fat liar, he just, this is what sin does. It just makes you even more furious, and then he just takes it out on more people. So anyway, verse 17, it says, This was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, um, a voice heard in Ramah. Now, Ramah is about five miles north of Jerusalem. Um, and this is just, in the Old Testament, this is from Jeremiah 31, um, where Jeremiah, this is a quote from Jeremiah 31, 15. It says, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, um, Rachel was one of the wives of Jacob. He had two, but he loved Rachel deeply. Um, it was definitely his favorite. She had Joseph, the coat of many colors. He showed lots of favor to Joseph, and he, she also had Benjamin. So as we're studying through the genealogies, we remember this. Um, as a matter of fact, Matthew breaks up his genealogies um, three sets of 14 at the end of the second set of 14 and at the beginning of the third set of 14 he actually breaks that up in chapter one according to this thing which is called the babylonian captivity it's whenever babylon comes in and kind of kills people and just destroys stuff takes over and the people are exiled and this is what's being prophesied here a loud voice was heard in ramah weeping in loud lamentation rachel weeping for her children so rachel has become kind of the mother of Israel in this sense. And so Matthew is saying, remember the Babylonian captivity? Remember whenever all this is happening and, and we were very upset about being taken over? This is like Rachel weeping over all of Israel. Rachel wasn't alive at the time, but Rachel's weeping over all of Israel. And he equates that to what's going on here when these babies are being killed by Herod. Now, 
the amazing thing here is this. This isn't just another prophecy to show that Jesus is the Messiah. But he quotes Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31. Which is just an amazing set of verses. Um, in 15, this is, this is the verse. But if you keep reading, and, and I wholeheartedly believe that these people of Israel knew these verses. And if you keep reading in Jeremiah 31, you get to verse 31 where one of the... One of the best descriptions of the new covenant that is coming is in Jeremiah 31. Um, so if you're looking in the Old Testament for, a, for some New Testament covenant language, you're going to find it in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. And this is what it said. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make, here it is, a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So God's already telling them, this is coming. And all of Israel knew that when he's quoting Jeremiah 31, 15, they say, oh, wait a second. New covenant language is in that, in that text. So this is what he says. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, you've got to remember where they were. They were totally rebelling against God. Let me be your God. Just obey what I say. Just, just obey my commandments. And they, just, just live with me as your father. Live with me as your king. And they're just like, no. They keep sinning. They keep kind of going after what would be the, the idols of the day. And God has no reason to restore them. Like, they've rebelled against him totally. And he said, I'm still going to pursue you as a loving father. I'm still going to come after you. And here's this new covenant. This is absolutely amazing. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel in those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They couldn't keep the laws. They couldn't keep His commandments. None of us can. We don't have the ability to do it. But He's saying, now I'm going to put it inside of you to be able to do it. This is this is foreshadowing of the Holy Spirit of Acts 1.8 that we read that's being given to us. The power of God inside of us. And then he says, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will, this is beautiful, I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. No more. So as he's pointing to this, saying there's a tragedy happening here for sure, he's also reminding them of this new covenant, which is your sin will no longer be remembered. Your sin will all be forgiven. So he's quoting here this second little gospel prophecy for us that we will be just like these people that, that have been um, told about in, 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 in uh, Jeremiah 31, that we will be these people. Our sin will no longer be held against us. Then he goes to the next set of verses in 19. So we already see two where one's quoted in Hosea, one's quoted in Jeremiah 31, and here's the next one. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream to Joseph, saying, uh, Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So he was... Here's Jerusalem. He was in Bethlehem. And so he flees down to Egypt. And so the angel said to come back over here to the land of Israel. So he comes back to the land of Israel. He's obeying. And says for Herod, basically, this guy Herod, who is seeking the child's life, is dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. 
But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his, Her- his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. So Archelaus was just as bad um, as, as Herod. And so he's here in the land of Israel and he's afraid to stay there because he knew Archelaus would probably try to kill Jesus as well. And so he said, he would, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, which is way up north up here. So he goes through this region of Galilee. And in this region of Galilee, there's a city called Nazareth. And so it says here, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. Now, this is very significant because everyone that was a Jew would understand he was from Nazareth. It's kind of like saying, I'm from this guy, Jesus. He, he's from 96 South Carolina. You know, I mean, anybody ever heard of that? It's like, what? Are you serious? Or he's from Heath Springs, South Carolina. Something really just like so tiny. You're like, is that really, are you making that up? Like, but they all knew where Nazareth was. This is such a tiny, tiny, tiny little place. Now, as these prophecies have been coming, if you read the story of Matthew and you read the story of Luke, um, they're both wanting, and one kind of focuses in on one and the other. But basically, he's born in Bethlehem, the city of David. So he absolutely fulfills all the prophecies, prophecies to show that he's a king. But after he does that, he's raised in Nazareth. He doesn't stay there. He's raised in Nazareth, this tiny little podunk, hillbilly, redneck town that everybody has an idea where that's just a podunk, redneck, hillbilly town. There's nothing there. As a matter of fact, that's why we read, as we're reading through Matthew, um, I'm sorry, in John, uh, in the very first chapter where Jesus is calling his disciples, they're like, you got to know this guy Jesus from Nazareth. And the guy's like, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Are you serious? Can anything good come out of 96? Like, are you serious? Nazareth? So everybody had this perception of Nazareth. But the whole point is this. Um, the reason why Matthew says Nazareth and the reason why that God sovereignly moved Jesus up to Nazareth and brought him from Nazareth is because he, want Jesus, he wanted Jesus to be, for his whole life, known as a man from humble beginnings. As a matter of fact, if we read in Luke 9, uh, 57 through 62, we also see that Jesus never owned anything. He had nowhere to lay his head. He didn't own anything. He just lived a very simple life. So Jesus, from the very, very beginning, all the way to the very end, lived a very simplistic life, didn't own very much, and was from Nazareth. Nazareth. Redneck. Nobody respects it. Nobody thinks... So we read it. We're like, from Nazareth. Yeah, you know, we, we have songs about it, and we think it's great. It wasn't great. And everybody knew it wasn't great. And so Matthew's wanting them to see that. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth that was spoken by the prophets. Notice the plural form there because we're going to talk about that in a second. Um, that might be fulfilled. He should be called a Nazarene. And the reason why God wanted him to be called a Nazarene is because no one respected Nazareth. No one thought anything big of Nazareth. And whenever they heard it, they're like, Nazareth, are you serious? That's brutal. Um, now, um, what about this verse here where it says, it was spoken by the prophets that it might be fulfilled. Quote, we have quotes there. He should be called a Nazarene. Um, Al Mohler says of this verse, um, all of the prophets said that and none of the prophets said that. Which is like, what do you mean? Um, you, you can't go into the Old Testament scriptures and find, quote, he shall be called a Nazarene. It's not in there. That's why it's plural. 
Like, if you notice before, as we've been looking, it says in one twenty-two, it was spoken by the prophet. And we know that's Isaiah 7. And as he goes um, to 2.5, this shall be spoke, written by the prophet. We know that's Micah 5. And then as we keep going, it keeps saying this is spoken by the prophet. And sometimes it'll even say his name. But here, in this particular place, it just says it was spoken by the prophets. No one said it. And all of them said it. Because all of them point to the fact, and remember, this is Jews. They know Nazareth. They know what it means. All of the prophets are pointing to the very humble beginnings of Jesus. Every single one of them are all pointing to that. And so when all of them are saying he's going to be poor, he's not going to be a man that's, that's um, thought of to, be, to have a lot, he's, he's going to have humble beginnings, etc. All the prophets talk about that, but you don't see a verse that says he shall be called a Nazarene. But again, written to Jews, they all know who Nazareth where Nazareth was. And so they all knew, oh, Nazareth, humble beginnings. That's all that means to them. Now here's the beauty in this. Here's the gospel in this. Um, the Old Testament does tell us of Christ's humble beginnings. And the New Testament portrays him as a man despised from Nazareth. Um, it doesn't portray him as a man from Bethlehem, but rather it portrays him as a man from Nazareth because they wanted to God and His sovereignty wanted Jesus to be seen as a man that was despised. We, we see that from Isaiah, as a man who had humble beginnings, that never owned anything. So this third prophecy is highlighting Christ's humble beginnings, which is fulfilled as Jesus' parents take Him up to Nazareth. Now here's the point. Here's the point of this. We, who are Christians, are also brought from, quote, humble beginnings. Let me read a text to you. This is Ephesians 2. Let's just kind of examine from the, the view of Paul how humble, quote-unquote humble, these beginnings are. This is Ephesians 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. If there isn't a more humble beginning than that, we were completely dead in our trespasses. And then it says this, made us alive together with Christ. Just as Jesus had these humble beginnings, but eventually went to a cross and showed that He was the King of the world and is now exalted at the right hand of the Father, we also start with quote-unquote humble beginnings, which is dead in our trespasses and sin, but we are also not that we become like Jesus in a sense that we become deity, but surely we become like Him in a sense that our bodies are going to be glorified and made like His glorious body. It says this, that He has made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So the gospel is even in this, as Christ was brought from Nazareth, from humble beginnings, and has been exalted at the right hand of the Father. So we are, in a sense, like Christ, where we are dead in our trespasses and sins, with no hope, but God in His infinite mercy reaches down into our desperate situation. Because when you're dead, you can't do anything. Reaches down into our desperate situation and reveals, sends Christ to die for us, we can now be awakened by God to start living for Him in the new birth and then have life eternal and then be glorified like Him where we don't sin anymore and our sinful bodies are made like His glorious body where we have 
no more sin. We have no more tears. And when we're in heaven, we're with him forever. Rejoicing with great joy because we have been made like Christ. There's another gospel in that. So we see that these three things aren't just kind of a, a quick narrative of to try to get us to John the Baptist. Um, the Jewish audience that would be reading this would be seeing, as Matthew's trying to say, this is what happened. As he quotes these Old Testament verses, he's just throwing them more Old Testament prophecies and letting them see, wow, God is infinitely more glorious than we thought. He is far more wise than we thought. And this man, Jesus, is the Messiah. That's what Matthew's wanting us to see. And then he takes us into chapter 3. Now, a couple, couple ways for us to maybe kind of um, land the plane or get some understanding of what this means for us right now. There's a lot in here that I want us to see. First is this, um, verse 14 and verse, tw- verse 21. Verse 14 and verse 21. One of the ways that we can kind of bring out application is to contrast obedience versus disobedience. Obedience versus disobedience. Look at verse 14. Um, and he rose. And he rose. God came to Joseph in the middle of the night. Hey, get up. Time to get out of here. Things are about to happen. No, what did he do? And he rose. Look at verse 21. The very first three words. Hey, you got to get out of here. Verse 21. And he rose. We see immediate obedience. Immediate obedience from Joseph. Now, I would venture to say... Over the next couple months, there are going to be times where God is going to come and by the Spirit subjectively speak to you. Um, you're going to have promptings from the Holy Spirit where He's going to say to you, I want you to do this. I'm, he's prompting you to go have a conversation. He's prompting you to, to invest in the life of someone. He's prompting you to share the gospel with this person or prompting you to sell something and give some money. I don't know. I mean, there's all kinds of promptings I can come up with. But what we can see here is God is going to prompt us to do something and Joseph immediately obeys. That's exactly the picture that we should have. Immediate obedience. And I would, pre- I would predict that we are going to have those things over the next couple of months. As a matter of fact, you're going to have those for the rest of your life. And just like Joseph, immediately, and he rose. That should be the picture of our life. Not, oh man, I really want this for that. Or, oh, I'm scared to talk to her. Or, oh man, that's going to mean it's immediate obedience. He's, he could just say, hey, this sin right here, you're not going any further until this is gone. Immediate obedience. He's going to prompt us all. And so one of the things that we can see here, one of the contrasts is obey or disobey. We need to see that God wants us to act immediately and obey him. Now, as we start bringing the gospel into this, we're going to see here that Jesus is completely all we need. As we, as we look at the fact like in, in the second section in verses 16 through 18, we see children suffering. And everything inside of us just wants to rebel and say, that's just, oh, that's not right. So perhaps you're going through some kind of experience right now or you have been going through some kind of experience where it may not be as as large scale as that in your life where you've lost a child but it's still every once in a while you'll find yourself saying i just i just don't understand god why is this happening to me now we have the we have the ability as we're looking here to see god's protecting the life of christ and so he's moving him out of the way but still we can ask but still why do the babies have to die we we don't know we just don't know. Um, there's answers in the Bible. And 
depending on where you are spiritually, you can find them helpful. Or sometimes, like me maybe, you just still need to mature spiritually and just be able to say, okay, if that's his answer, if, if it's who am I to understand the things of God, I don't know. God has his purposes. He's able to live at 30,000 feet and see from eternity past to eternity future and know how the whole story unfolds and I'm not, then that's just what it is. And I, I, I'm not God. So maybe right now, your thing is, I'm in the middle of suffering. Like these parents. You don't have a spiritual father who is unable to sympathize with you. You have a father who is able to sympathize with you. God himself also had his son die. The greatest sin that ever happened in the world was the death of Jesus Christ. And God the Father is able to sympathize with that. So whatever experience you're going through where you're experiencing suffering, the point is this. You have the God of all comfort to be able to go to and, go and say, God, I don't understand why this is happening. I don't understand why this happened in my life. I don't understand why these circumstances in my past are still happening or coming to bear in my relationships. But Jesus is still all you need. The fact that the gospel is true, that we have, we have total forgiveness and total righteousness before God, and we don't understand the circumstances, but we also know that we have a Father that is able to sympathize with us that we can go to. Maybe that's where it is. Maybe you, you're struggling with obedience. Maybe you're struggling with suffering. Or maybe you're struggling as being seen as a son or daughter. Like Hosea, whenever... All of Israel is coming back and saying, you are a son of daughter. You have to have the gospel on top of that. You have to be able to see that Christ has forgiven all of your sin. There's not a sin that you've committed that he hasn't forgiven and that he doesn't see you now as 100% righteous and 100% pure in his eyes, that you're free now to go and start living for his glory. You're not under condemnation where he's saying, I'm sorry, um, that sin right there that you did, I've forgiven all of it, but that right there doesn't let you have you know, life eternal. It's everything is forgiven no matter what it was, you're now my son. You're my daughter. And just as my child, one of my children would come up to me and say, Daddy, I want to climb up in your lap and experience perfect intimacy with you, though I'm not perfect. God has, is extending that. You have now, because all of your sin is forgiven, perfect intimacy being offered to you from God the Father. Maybe it's struggling with this idea of Jeremiah 31, where it says, all your sin is forgiven. Maybe it's like this last part here where we can't even begin to comprehend the fact that we were dead in our trespasses and sin, but now we're made alive. This new birth, this regeneration has happened, and we don't even know what to do with it. We can't comprehend that God has made us alive. And now that He has made us alive, He has put the Holy Spirit inside of us and we are alive and free no longer enslaved to sin but free to start living for his glory empowered by the holy spirit to walk through this life to share the gospel with people to not just make a difference physically in their temporal life but make a difference in their life eternally because we have a gospel that we can tell them and god can draw them to himself and they can experience eternal life so that's, that's what's going on in this text. It's, it's an amazing text as you look through it to think that there's just 
prophecies of the Old Testament showing us that Jesus is the Messiah, but also modern day implications that the gospel is true and that we have been made sons and daughters, that we have been forgiven of all of our sin, that we have been dead in our trespasses. We have started in humble beginnings, but one day we're going to be glorified, made like Christ, never to sin again. That we won't break the heart of our Father with our sin anymore. But we are completely forgiven. We won't feel shame and guilt anymore, though we're 100% forgiven. Amazing, amazing gospel realities in this. And so I'm not sure... um, how this has landed, how this is hitting you. But I'm hoping that the gospel is more beautiful to you this morning than maybe it was before you got here. More alive, more fresh, more amazing that you have been transferred, that you're now a son or daughter, that you will be made like Christ and not sin anymore. And so what I want to invite us into is this. Response. Response. We have all been wired to worship. We, we get up and worship every single morning. Sometimes it's God, sometimes it's ourselves, sometimes it's other people. But God has told us that when His Word comes to us, that the proper response for us is for us to acknowledge and respond. And so here, now, for the next few minutes or so, we're going to respond through song. And after we're done, we're going to respond through actions of going out and living lives of worship. But what God's calling you here right now is response. Not half-hearted engagement. Not like, oh, that's all true. All right. That's good. But the reality that Christ has saved you forever. That all of your sin in front of a holy God is totally forgiven. And instead of His wrath being on you... Now all of his forgiveness is on you and you are standing righteous in front of him. That he has filled you with your spirit, his spirit. He's given you power, his power, inexhaustible power now to walk in the fullness of the spirit, living a God glorifying life that he's always pleased with you. He's not pleased with you one day. He's pleased with you now and he loves you deeply now and you're walking completely and you have this opportunity for intimacy with him. 100% intimacy with your father right now. And he's saying, just respond to that. Let your mind and your heart open to that. Let the reality of that sink in deep. And so whatever that looks like for you, whatever it looks like for you, then respond that way. Maybe you need to sit and think. Maybe you just need to pray. Maybe you just need to raise your hands. Maybe you just need to stand to your feet and clap your hands. I mean, all of these things are appropriate. Responses in worship. And however God's wired you, I just pray that you would not let moments like this where we can corporately unite all of our hearts together and sing. No, don't miss out on this because there's something special when God's people come together and proclaim out. It's not this. It's not that Cameron is singing and you're singing at Cameron. It's that Cameron is joining you and congregationally we're all singing praises to Jesus. So if you know the words, close your eyes. Just respond, however God's wired you, however God's leading you. Because this is true. Corporate worship fuels lifestyle worship. And lifestyle worship fuels corporate worship.
It's just amazing how God does that. I am fired up whenever I have some awesome times of worship. And I should have it every time because it's not God, it's me. I just don't allow myself to engage. But I am fired up. I just wanted like to the waitress, like, let me pray for you. Let me tell you about Jesus. Here's a gospel track. I, I freak out, you know. Um, and it fires me up as I go out and I want to do everything. And as I do those things, when I come back in here and I hear the word, it's so powerful that it fires me up to want, and it's just a, a beautiful cycle. And I'm saying, hey, jump into this, man. This is it. This is what life is about. So however God's wiring you, I just ask you to jump in and let's just see what he's going to do with us this year. I think he's got some amazing, amazing things. I'm going to pray and then we're going to go into a time of worship. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much that you have given us the gift of the spirit, that you have given us the gift of salvation, and that because of Christ's work on the cross, that we have God's power in us. We have these beautiful pictures of the gospel from the Old Testament where we are now called sons, of, sons and daughters, where we, we now have all of our sin forgiven, all of our iniquity cast as far, and you remember our sin no more, that we have been dead spiritually at one point, but now been made alive spiritually in Christ, free to live for your glory. Be with us now as we worship God. Be with us now as we sing your praises. We love you. And I pray these things in Jesus' name.